This is the Byron Bledsoe Podcast, Senior Pastor of C3 Church in Orlando, Florida. Thank you so much for checking out today's message. We hope this word encourages you and inspires you. Let's jump into the message. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Hey, if today is your first time at C3, I just want to say welcome. We are thrilled that you're here today, and it's my first time in a while. I've been on vacation, but it was a working vacation. We have a, we have a home in Texas that my grandfather built, and then it went to my parents, and now it's ours, and we're trying to finish it up. We're going to be airbnb that quite a bit, so we were out there. Uh, part of it was vacation. Part of it is I was putting together furniture, which I had no idea how much I hate putting together furniture. And one of the things I discovered is the cheaper the furniture, the more pieces there are. And the directions, like if you've ever done this, the directions on putting together furniture. We, we have one bunk bed uh, that Angie wanted to get for the two granddaughters for, for, for whenever we go out there to see my family. And I think I put that one bunk bed together four times. I would get it almost done and then had to go back and redo everything. And there's a really nice place in the front where there's, I had it backwards and so the screw came through and it looks really ugly and it's going to be exciting. And listen, hanging curtains. Guys, I don't know about you, but hey, I can get the ladder and the drill and go up there and drill the hole and put the little thing in, but I usually hit metal or I'm too close to the ceiling or too close to the window. When I get done hanging curtains, it looks like a drive-by happened in the house, like there are holes everywhere. And so it was that kind of that break, and I could not get, wait to get home to see you, but I was thinking about the directions on putting together furniture, whether you go to Ikea and grab furniture there and it's cartoon pictures, or you order stuff online that comes from somewhere overseas, and they say, hey, put it all together. And, and there's really no directions at all, but sometimes the directions are complicated. This morning, we are hitting Romans chapter 9. If you're a guest, we've been going through the book of Romans and really talking about how it's theology for today. Theology, theos, God, uh, logos, the study of, the study of God. It's important to know what we believe and why we believe it, not just what we believe, but why we believe it. And so Romans does a phenomenal job of saying, hey, here's who God is, here's who we are, and here's what we need to do about it. But when we hit Romans chapter 9, it gets extremely complicated. In fact, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, it's one thought. It's basically a question and a long answer. And it's a difficult passage. In fact, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are three of the most debated, three of the most argued about passages, not just in Romans, but in all of the Bible. Because in these three chapters, there are polarizing ideas or theologies that, are, that, that come out of these chapters that some people, they build their life on this to disprove that. Other people, they build their life on this to disprove that. And so this morning, we're going to dive into that. And because it's three chapters of the same idea, we're just going to do a flyover. We're going to touch down at certain points where you and I have an understanding of what these chapters are talking about. And then I want to finish this morning for just a couple of moments talking about how do you study the Bible? Like, especially when you get to a difficult passage, what is the way? Because the incredible thing about our God is he wants to spend time with you. And you can study the Bible. You don't have to wait on a Sunday to hear from somebody else. You can study the Bible. But how do we do that, 
And it can feel a little bit overwhelming if you think, man, I don't know the Greek, I don't know the Hebrew, I don't know the Aramaic, I don't know, I don't know the tenses, I don't know what's imperative. I, how do I figure that out? So I want to give you a very simple way to do that. But Romans chapter 9 begins with a long answer to a simple question. Now, 9, 10, and 11, you think about back in the day when this letter hit the church at Rome. Nobody had a Bible. Nobody popped out their iPhone to follow along in version. That wasn't the case. They listened to it being read. It takes about nine and a half minutes to read all three chapters. I'm not going to do that this morning. You can do that on your own, and I would encourage you to. But as they were listening, think about the context. They're listening to the letter being read, and there are going to be certain nuances. There are going to be certain uh, hints dropped about certain things or certain phrases used, the, the context of it, while they're listening to it being read, the audience is doing this because they understood. See, they understood the context better than we understand the context. They understood well and, and knew well the fall that happened in the garden early in Genesis, which is referenced. They understand Genesis chapter 12, the promise that comes to Abraham when his name was changed from Abram to Abraham and that God would bless him and he would have many descendants. They understood that the descendants of Abraham, some would follow God and some would not. And they understood that it meant not every descendant of Abraham got that blessing. They understood that in the beginning of Genesis chapter 21, there's Ishmael and Isaac, and that Isaac is the child of promise that the Jewish nation would come through. And then Isaac had Esau and Jacob, and Jacob, the Jewish nation, would continue to come through him. But they also understood that in the Jewish nation, not all the descendants were descendants spiritually. But God always kept a remnant, a group. There was a group that was faithful, faithful defined as hearing God and obeying God. There was a group that listened to God, those who believed God and those who followed God. So chapters one through eight is God saying, hey, you're not good enough, I'm not good enough. We needed God to intervene. That's why he sent Jesus. On my best day, I don't measure up to the perfection of God. I, I am unholy, I'm broken, I'm a mess, just like you, just like every other human being. That's why God had to send Jesus to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. So one through eight is, hey, you're messed up. But then nine, we take a turn. And the question that gets the long answer is this. Has God rejected the Jewish nation, his chosen people? And Paul takes, Paul takes three chapters to say no. Three chapters. I mean, do you ever read the Bible and say, come on, God, you could have done this in two verses. I mean, like, let's just be honest. But I'm not God. He's way smarter than me. And so he lays this out in three chapters. And in these three chapters, the answer Paul gives is no, because they were wrestling with, has God rejected the Jewish nation because of how often they've rejected him? And is that why God allows Gentiles to come to faith in Christ and kind of broaden it and open it up where everybody can come to faith in Christ? And, and so did he reject the Jewish nation because of that? And Paul says no, but in that process, we deal with something called the sovereignty of God that God knows everything, is over everything, nothing happens without God allowing it. It doesn't mean God necessarily initiates everything, but certainly God can't initiate evil, but he allows evil in a broken and fallen world. And in that, here are the two theologies that biblical scholars try to push us into one group or the other. One theology is a form of theology that, that comes up in these chapters is called Calvinism. Now, this is going to be, this is going to be a little bit of an information dump. 
but it's important to understand what we're talking about because remember, you need to know not just what you believe, but why you believe it. Calvinism, basically, John Calvin came up with this theology. He has five points to it called the tulip. You can Google that later. But basically, it is God is sovereign, and before the beginning of time, God decided who would get saved and who would not. And so if you're not part of what's called the elect, then you have no way to come to Jesus in your lifetime. God decided ahead of time who would come to him and who wouldn't. And if you're going to come to him, there's nothing you can do about it in your life. You're going to get saved. And if you're not going to come to him, there's, there's nothing you can do about it. You're lost. You're going to spend eternity in hell. That's John Calvin. I sat in a Bible class at Southeastern College in Wake Forest, North Carolina. One week after Angie and I lost a baby. The professor was a Calvinist, and he was teaching on this issue, and someone asked him, okay, but does that mean if you have a child that dies, and they weren't one of the elect, they go to hell? And the professor said, yes. Now, you already know I'm from Texas. What I want to do is punch him in the throat. I got up and left the, I was full of, I, I lost a baby the week before. And it's not that my feelings or my sensitivities overcome theology, but church, one of the things that we need to understand, be very careful how you communicate what you believe. What you believe is never more important than who you're talking to. But that's, that's Calvinism. And so there are people that will take the next three chapters and you can read them on your own in detail and say, well, this proves that, that God picked some people to go to heaven and some to go to hell. There's nothing you can do about it. And, and so, yeah, do evangelism, share Jesus out of obedience, but you don't know who's elect and who's not. And so there's nothing you can do about it. You just do the best you can. And if you're not one of the elect, sucks to be you. That's Calvinism. Then, then there's Joseph Arminian. Arminianism leans on the free will side. Arminianism, in its truest sense, that theology, that belief system basically says that God has done everything necessary for you to know Jesus and holds on to the verses in the Bible like whosoever will may come and says anybody can come to faith in Christ. Anybody, whosoever will. It's the free will side. So Calvin is all about the sovereignty of God Arminian is all about the free will and our ability to respond to God's love, that God initiates salvation, but we can respond and say yes. The problem with Joseph Arminian is he also says you can lose your salvation. That if you're not living right and there's sin in your life, maybe you invited Jesus into your life, you became a Christ follower, but there are certain areas you're not following, you can lose your salvation. So you got to get saved over and over and over again. Now, it's important to me that you understand where I stand and where we stand as a church. Calvinism, Arminianism. Because in the world of theology, you will be, uh, tried to be, people will try to force you into one of these two boxes. Here's the reality. I'm not an ism. An ism is a man-made theology. John Calvin, Jesus loved him, but I don't know him, and I disagree with a lot of what he taught. Joseph Arminian, Jesus loved him, but, but I don't know him, and I disagree with a lot of what. You can't push me into either one of these camps. There's some things I agree with, some I don't agree with. Rather than following John Calvin or Joseph Arminian, I'm going to follow the Bible. I'm going to say, hey, here's what I think the Bible says. And that usually, usually when I talk about this, if we have two or three Calvinists, two or three Arminians, you don't see them again after this Sunday. It's weird. But... 
So keep that in mind. Those are the, because this group will say, oh, these verses prove our case and you're wrong. And in the same three chapters, this group will say, oh, these verses prove our case and you're wrong. Why, why are we fighting about stuff men came up with? Why don't we just follow what God teaches and work out on our own and not be pushed into labels and categories? Because I'm not about an ism, I'm about the Bible. So with all of that in mind, Here's the flyover. Now, you might want to buckle your seatbelt. We're, we're going to roll through these verses fairly quickly just to give you an idea of the context of 9, 10, and 11. I'm not reading it all. I'm just hitting some of the highlights. 9, chapter 1, Paul writing, inspired by the Spirit of God, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms through the Holy Spirit I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people those of my own race, the people of Israel. I, I wish I could go to hell instead of them and, and, and let them see the light and see who Jesus is and, and receive his gift of salvation. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises, all God has done for the children of Israel. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised, amen. And then verse six. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. He's saying just because you're Jewish by birth doesn't mean you're Jewish spiritually. In the same way, just, just because you call yourself a Christ follower does not mean you're a Christ follower. Just because your parents were Christians or your grandparents were Christians, just because you have a heritage of faith in your family does not mean that you're a person of actual faith. Nor, nor because they are his descendants are they Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Verse 10, not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, there's that word, not by works, but by him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's strong language. I have two sons, one I love, one I hate. That's strong language. But in the context, when they're hearing this read in the church of Rome, they get the context. We don't, because our version of hate, hate means I have to destroy you. Hate means you're worthless. Hate means I have nothing for you, can't stand you, don't want to be around you. Hate in our terms, we have done a masterful job of taking hate to a whole nother level in our culture. Hate to them, what they understood the context of the verse to mean is, I love this one so much. I love them both, but I love this one so much that it might look like, it might seem, it might feel like I hate the other one. I love them both. But this one I love so much more. That's the context. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. Verse 19, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? That, that's great, but you might want to write that down. Who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? 
Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Verse 25, as he says in Hosea, now remember the context. This letter's being read. Nobody's looking at their Bible and everybody's staying there. When he says, as it says in Hosea, everybody's going, oh yeah, yeah, Hosea. They were familiar with it. Some of you, Hosea, who's Hosea? Two houses down? I don't, I don't know. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And then chapter 10. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. You can be passionate about what you believe, but it doesn't mean it's what God believes. Chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, here it is again, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. He's referring to a time where there was this miracle that took place. Elijah calls down fire from heaven. The prophets of Baal are destroyed. There's this huge victory, and then Elijah's afraid because one lady wants to kill him. She's the queen, but did you not see what God just did when you prayed? I mean, how many times have you prayed and fire fell? That's never happened in my life, like never, never. Don't know that I've ever prayed for fire to fall. Sometimes in Florida, it feels like fire is falling outside, but... You just had God answer a prayer like that, and now you're afraid. And he runs, and he hides, and he's pouting, and basically his attitude is, I'm the only one that's being faithful. I'm the only one that's trusting you, God. I'm the only one that's trying to do anything. Everybody else, <clears throat> they've bailed on you. They believe the wrong stuff. Here I am, and now somebody's trying to kill me. No, notice, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God says, you have no flippin' idea what I'm doing in the hearts and lives of other people. You have no idea who's with me and who's not with me. Stop shrinking the world to what you can see. Take a glance at what I can see because I'm doing some things beyond what you can see. You are never alone. God is always working in the lives of people. You are never the only one that's standing up and trying to be faithful. God always has people trying to do that. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. And then verse 11, and I ask again, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Is it over? Not at all. And then, then in verse 18 of chapter 11 is an interesting warning. Do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. Now he, he flips and he's speaking to the Gentiles. Hey, you, you kind of got grafted in. Like you weren't a part of the original, you, you got grafted into the tree, but, but without the tree, without the life that it provides, you, you, you're nothing. Do not consider yourself superior to those other branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in, granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be ignorant, but tremble. We don't do that. We don't tremble at the thought of the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. We spend our lives building our case for what we believe 
And we think more of our own words and thoughts than God's. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you, provided that you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Three difficult chapters. Three chapters laying out, no, God has not given up on these people. Three chapters that people pick and choose what verses they believe to build systems of beliefs so they can argue and fight. Ultimately, what he's saying in these three chapters, do you trust God enough to follow him? Do you trust God enough to obey him? Because that's what it all comes down to. God is going to fulfill all of his promises while calling us to fulfill our responsibilities. Tremble. Walk in faith. Don't be foolish. Don't become apathetic. Don't live a life of lazy faith. Live a life where you pursue your relationship with Jesus. So let me give you some some Bible study principles. How, how do you study passages like this? You're going to go home, and sometime this week, hopefully, I encourage you to read chapters 9, 10, 11, and you're going to look at that. How do you, how do you approach difficult passages? How, how do you study the Bible, difficult passage or easy passage? What is the approach? There are a few things that are incredibly important to remember, and I want to give you those this morning. Number one, always start with the big picture, not the small idea. Always start with the big picture, not the small idea. Someone has said, a verse a day will not keep the devil away, but it can mess up your theology. How many people pick verses out of the Bible to build a belief system on them, to build their life on them? Don't be someone who walks into a forest and picks just one tree to hug. Build your life on the context and on the entirety of the Word of God. And the best explainer, the best definer, the best interpreter of the Word of God is the rest of the Word of God. View things in context. I'll give you a couple examples. There are a couple of things that we think, because we, we have a small idea and we ignore the big picture. There are a couple of things we think the Bible says that it doesn't say or it doesn't say to certain people. For example, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. <laughs> there, are, there are t-shirts, there are coffee mugs, there. But listen, if I live a life that honors Jesus, I can do anything. This verse does not mean I'm always going to win. That's not what it means. It means winning or losing because I'm a Christ follower, everything's going to work out. But we take it to mean I'm winning, everything I do, I can do anything. through. No, you can't. Jump off a 10-story building. You can't fly. No, you can't. Stop it. Like, we need to learn to read verses in context and stop this lazy kind of believism where we grab something cute that somebody else posted. It's like, oh my gosh, I needed to hear that today. No, you need to stop living with somebody you're not married to and you need to stop robbing God and you need to plug into a local church where your life can be fed. Then things are gonna change. It's not going to be a cute phrase of a misinterpreted verse that changes your life. Just my thoughts. Uh, Philippians 4.19 is another one. I love, the, I, love the, I love this one. I love this one. So let's talk about it. Philippians 4.19. 
Therefore, my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Oh, that sounds so good. My God's going to supply all your needs. Now, the problem is, as a Christ follower, we change the word needs for wants, and if God doesn't supply my wants, we think there's a problem with God. Also, did you know Philippians 4.19 does not apply to every Christ follower? Therefore, my God will supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus does not apply to every Christ follower. But man, we hold on to it when things are tough, when we're struggling, when circumstances are difficult. Oh, God's going to supply all my needs. Not necessarily. Do you understand the context? Do you understand what's around this verse? The letter was written to those who had financially supported Paul's missionary journeys. The verses leading up to verse 19, Paul basically says, nobody else came close to helping financially the way you did. You gave beyond my needs. You gave abundantly. Therefore, my God shall supply all your needs. It is written to and for generous Christ followers who give significantly to support the kingdom of God. It is not written to people who rob God. It's just not. Always start with the big picture and you're studying the Bible, not the small idea. There's a second thing to do. This is important because we get stuck here. Focus on what you clearly understand, not what you don't. We get so stuck on what we don't understand that we don't take any time to do what we do understand. It's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand that cause me the biggest problems in my life. It's the things that I do understand but don't like and don't apply that cause me the biggest problems in my life. The Bible says it's all about obedience. In fact, the Bible says obedience is more important than knowledge. Jesus did not say, if you love me, study the Bible so you know the meaning of every word. Jesus said, if you love me, obey me and keep my commandments. It's not that theology doesn't matter. Theology is incredibly important. It's just that theology only works when we walk in obedience to Scripture. I'd rather have 100 people who don't know the Bible that well and are obeying everything they do know than 10,000 people who know the Bible inside and out and spend all their time arguing minor details and difficult teachings. We can take over the world with 100 uninformed, obedient, while the 10,000 just run their mouths and add to the noise of society. We have a tendency to read the Bible and get stuck. In fact, this is one of the reasons a lot of people stop reading the Bible. We get stuck when we hit something we don't understand. No, make a note. Get to that later. But first, deal with everything that's crystal clear and speaking to you about where you're living right now. Let me help you. Let me give you an example. Don't worry about end times theology. There's some fanatics about that. But you know what I've noticed? People who spend all their time talking about end time theology, the world's about to end, Jesus is about to come back, it's almost over. I've never met anybody that believes that, that invites a ton of people to church. You are one arrogant SOB, son of a biscuit. If, if you believe, it's church, what do you think? See, we, we get caught up in our faith where we make it all about us and not about anybody else. But the very essence of faith, Jesus left heaven and came to earth. He expects you to leave your house and go to somebody and help somebody meet Jesus. But we get so stuck in what I believe and what it's going to do for me and how God's going to bless me and I'm going to be okay and I'm going to heaven and he's going to answer my prayer. And we don't give a rip about the people around us. So don't worry about end times theology until you get treating your wife right down. 
Don't worry about end times theology until you have integrity in your business. Don't worry about end times theology until you stop robbing God financially because the scripture teaches plain black ink, white paper, and Jesus endorses it red ink in Matthew what Malachi says in the Old Testament, you bring the first 10% to the local church as an act of obedience because God is my provider, he's my protector, and I want to obey him and I want to put Jesus first financially. If you don't have that down, don't worry about the hard stuff. Don't worry about it. You're worried about what's gonna happen in the end and you're not obeying God with what you know right now with your next paycheck. Seriously? Don't worry about what you don't understand. Do something about what you do understand. And here's the icing on the cake. Here's the beautiful thing about Scripture. Proverbs teaches us this. When we obey, our understanding increases. The more you obey the Word of God, the more you'll understand more of what it teaches. Let me give you a third one. Find your answers in the Bible. Don't bring your answers to the Bible. Find your answers in the Bible. Don't bring your answers to the Bible. You and I do a masterful job of deciding what we believe in spite of what God thinks about it. And you and I do a great job of building our own system of beliefs, our own theology, what we think about things, before we know what God says or sometimes in spite of what God says. While I was out of town, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. And that issue is such a difficult issue. And if you're in this room and you've had an abortion, please don't assume what I'm about to say about what you think pastors typically say. What I want you to hear is you are deeply loved, you are no less valuable, you're completely loved by God, And the church in America needs to do a better job of helping people that are struggling and making difficult decisions and in trouble. It's part of the reason we as a church support things like Beta House here in Orlando, a home for unwed teenage moms who who are expecting. But listen, it's really very simple. We try to complicate it with a lot of nuances and There are complicated circumstances, but the issue is simple. God creates life. Scripture teaches God creates life. Don't don't try to build what you believe about it's okay to take the life of a baby in a womb and go to the Bible to prove it. That one I don't think you can even do. The Bible is clearly very straightforward foundationally expressing that God is the creator of life and we are to value life. That means the life of the unborn. That also means the life of the mom who's scared to death and making some difficult decisions. We are to be a church of love and grace. And so in the life of C3, we are unashamedly, very clearly, pro-life. I 
I don't think you can honestly read your Bible and come to any other conclusion under the sun. But also think that you can't read your Bible and decide that you're better than anybody else. And you can't read your Bible and decide that there's something that people can do that's worse than anything you've done. And by the way, the same Bible also says, if you have hate in your heart toward anybody else, you've committed murder. So we're all in the same, we're all broken. We're all messed up. We just need to do a better job of loving people, loving God, and obeying what God teaches, even when it's inconvenient, even when it's uncomfortable. I don't want a convenient kind of faith where I only obey God when it's easy. I want the kind of faith where I obey God no matter what. And listen, often I fail miserably. But the reality is I want there to be a default position in my life of, uh, in my life, I want to find my answers in the Bible. I don't want to bring my answers to the Bible. So you, you cannot, you cannot call yourself a Bible-believing Christian and be pro-choice. You can't. And if you disagree with me, I still love you. I'm not mad at you. I don't hate you. You're wrong. <laughs> but I still love you. You're still welcome here. Because I'm not going to fight about an issue. I'm going to love you. But I will always... I will always tell you the truth of what Scripture says. And some of us in the church need to get off our high horse of believing other stuff instead of the Word of God. And some of us in the church need to stop being so proud of who we are because we haven't done this, that, and the other. If everybody knew what you had done, if we put on the screen what you had done, you wouldn't feel so puffed up and proud. Jethro, let me, let me give you a fourth one very quickly. Y'all aren't listening fast enough. Very quickly. Study the Bible not to evaluate God, but to understand God. Study the Bible not to evaluate God, but to understand God. To read the Bible is to understand and know my God. That, that's my purpose. I don't read the Bible to see if he qualifies to be God. The issue we just spoke of, God is the creator of life. Another issue that people are very sensitive about, tithing, that I've talked about two or three times this morning. Mike talking about it again before I'm done. People get very funny when you talk about money. But the reality is, Scripture talks about it. It talks about real issues in life. I would not be a good pastor. I would not be a good friend if I didn't say, hey, here's what the Bible says. Now, it's between you and God what you do with it. But listen, it is a dangerous place spiritually to study the Bible, to evaluate whether or not you're going to agree with and obey God. That is a, I, I don't want to be in that place. Everything God says, for me, it's a, yeah, you're right. Even when I don't do it the way he says do it, you're right. I'm wrong. God's never been wrong. So as I study the Bible, I want to understand God. I want to get to know God. I'm not trying to pick and choose what I agree with. Oh, I don't agree with that passage. Oh, that passage is outdated. Oh, you know, there's some theologian that said that doesn't matter anymore. Remember Romans 1? That was fun. That was a party in the park, Romans 1. Listen, when I look at the Word of God, God says what He means, and He means what He says. And if you struggle with some of the things God says, it may be because God said it, or it may be because we as the church have done a horrible job representing the love of God in the words of God. Study the Bible not to evaluate God, but to understand God. And then the last one, this one's important. As Christ followers, our unity is found in Jesus, not in our individual beliefs. Our unity is found in Jesus. In the unclear areas of life, I don't get to decide who's okay and who's not. 
I don't get to decide if something's unclear. I don't get to decide who's right and who's wrong. I don't get to decide who's my spiritual brother or my spiritual sister based on them agreeing with me on everything I say. My spiritual brothers and sisters are those who follow Jesus. That is the only standard. That is the only test. We don't study the Bible to go get the right answers and then write off everyone you think doesn't agree with your right answers. That's not following Jesus. That's following you and the God that you're building. And you're forgetting that you are made in the image of God because you're trying to make God in the image you want him to be in. In life, one thing we all have in common is we change our minds. Some of us more than others. We change our minds. It's part of growth. And as we understand life more, as we understand the Bible more, we change our minds about things. I grew up in a church that believed it was a sin to drink alcohol. You could never drink. And they were so legalist. In fact, I heard pastor after pastor after pastor talk about how it was a sin to drink alcohol. They never talked about how it was a sin to eat so much you get super fat, gluttony, which the Bible does say. They didn't talk about that. They didn't talk about how many people forks are killing, but they talked all about how it's a sin to drink alcohol. And as I got older, you know what I understand? As I, as I began to read the Bible for myself, the Bible never says not even in one place don't drink. In fact, Jesus' first miracle was turning water to wine. You just can't, I mean, I don't care what argument you want to throw up, you're done. You're done. Like, it's right there. Well, you don't understand the percentage of alcohol back in that day. Shut up. You can't find, you can find where it says don't be drunk. You can find where it says don't be led by that, but be led by the Spirit. Oh, you can find that. But you cannot find it. So I changed my mind. Tithing. I spent years as a pastor robbing God. Giving 10% did not come naturally to me. In fact, I don't know anybody that says, 10%? Oh, yeah, you want more? Like, <laughs> wait, what? But have you ever thought about the reality? God said, hey, bring me the first 10%, live on 90, and I'll bless you. God could have said, bring the first 90%, live on 10, and I'll bless you. But I spent years. In fact, the first church, the church I pastored in Missouri, pray for those people. I still pray for them. I was horrible. I was 19 years old, 20 years old, something like that. It was, it was terrible. It was terrible. But I didn't tithe. We, we lived in a, what was called a parsonage. It was a home that the church owned where they let the, let the pastor live because they can't pay you what they should pay you. And it was, it was like a 30-year-old mobile home. There were tires on the roof so the roof wouldn't blow off in the wind. And, and the master bedroom, the master bedroom had a beautiful bay window that overlooked the church cemetery. It was amazing. It was amazing. <laughs> I made $400 a month. I was in school and pastoring Angie. We, we had Kayla, she was a little baby. And, and I thought, man, they're starving me to death. I barely make everything. I'm not tithing. I'll view the fact they're not paying me enough as tithing. You know what that's called? That's called rationalization. Technically, it's called sin. But the more I got into the Word of God, the first few years of C3, I wouldn't talk about money. You guys barely, I would not talk. I'm not going to talk about money. That might offend people. I'm not going to talk about tithing. People might get upset with me. I'm not going to do that. But you know what I began to realize? Jesus talked about it more than the Lord's Supper, baptism, and hell combined. Because we deal with financial things every single day. 
And I'm not a good pastor if I don't say to you, hey, the way to bring God's blessing into your life, the way to bring God's partnership into your life, the way to bring God's provision into your life is to put him first financially and obey him and bring the first 10% to the local church. And so now I talk about it a lot more. Some of you, yeah, you do, you do. You've hit it quite a few times this morning. Yep. That's because about 70% of you still rob God. Like, I don't even know why you still come here. You're letting everybody else serve and give, and you just come and you sit and you coast, and I don't understand. Man, if God is not using me in a way to get you to change your mind and step up into your faith and cause you to want to follow Jesus more, you should probably go find a pastor that does because I have failed you. Church is not about coming and sitting and listening and feeling a little bit bad for about an hour, and somehow we think because we felt bad we did something spiritual. No, it's about obeying what Scripture teaches. So I changed my mind on tithing, and now and I, Angie and I tithe. Like that's the, every year our goal is to give a greater percentage than we did the year before. And now I'm addicted to it because I see what God does in it. I'm addicted to the stories I hear from you when you dive in. You and I have changed. So here's what that means. You're not always right even when you passionately believe it. So live in humility. And if you are right, listen, if you are right, we're going into an election season. If you are right, please hear me. If you are right, if you have Facebook and Instagram, if you are right, God can get other people to the same belief you have way better than you can. I've never seen anybody read a social media post and go, Dad, I was wrong. I've never seen that. All you do is piss people off. It's all you do. You would do far better if you work on just helping people get to C3 and meet Jesus and let God change their lives than spewing out that stuff that nobody, nobody's going to agree with and just fight about. That's, that's my little rant. I've been off. I told you I saved it up. <laughs> Nobody is called to measure up to your opinion. Everybody is called to measure up to Jesus, including you. We study the Bible to know God and become more like Jesus, who loved people, gave his life for people, died for people. He died even for the ones who murdered him. That's a depth of love that can change the world, and it's a depth of love that can change you and me. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you so much for the reality of your deep love. And God, in a broken world, in a hurting world, in a world where there's so many opinions about so many things, I pray that as followers of Jesus, we would focus on what your word teaches. We would listen to your voice over other voices and we would follow you. With heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you're here this morning, and you know that the greatest need in your life is to give your life to Jesus, to truly become a Christ follower, to commit your life to Christ. You know that Jesus came to pay the penalty for your sin. That's what he did on the cross. And when he rose from the dead three days later, and he wants to live inside you, forgive your sin, give you a home in heaven and a purpose in life. And if you'd like to have that with heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to encourage you to pray a very simple prayer. You can pray it out loud or you can pray it quietly in your heart. Just say, dear God, I know that I need you. Jesus, please come into my life. Forgive my sin. And help me to live for you. Thank you for loving me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thank you so much for checking out C3 online. And if you prayed that prayer with me, I'd love to know that. I want to invite you just to shoot me a text with just your first name. Send that to 407 
487-8311. The reason I do that is I'll get a list of names this evening, and I would love to be praying for you by name this week. And then also I want to thank those of you that are part of C3 for your faithful generosity. Whether you text C3 Orlando to 77977 or you mail, check in, however you invest, when you invest in C3 Church, you're investing in life change. And the last thing is we would love to see you in the room next Sunday. If you're in Central Florida, join us at 930 or 11. Have an amazing week. God bless you.